the 20th century author C.S. Lewis. I'm sure many of you know C.S. Lewis and his story, the series based in Narnia, beginning with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Excuse me. And uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there are children, four children, Peter, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy. They enter a world called Narnia. But as they enter into this world through the back of their uncle's wardrobe, they discover that it is enslaved but in winter. It's always winter, they say, the children say, but never Christmas. Because the white witch has put her spell over the whole land. But the lion Aslan is rumored to be coming to set things right and to bring spring once again to Narnia. But one of the children, Edmund, is tricked into betraying his siblings, and Edmund becomes enslaved to the white witch. As she says to Aslan when he confronts her, you know the deep magic written on the stone table. Every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey, and for every treachery I have a right to a kill. But Aslan, the lion, who is to come and set them free, willingly gives his life to free the child. And the queen takes her enemy Aslan in exchange and humiliates him and kills him on the stone table. And the children are horrified to see Aslan dead on the slab. And they walk some distance away through the night, weeping. And when they return to the place that Aslan was, they can't at first comprehend what they see. And C.S. Lewis writes... The rising of the sun had made everything look so different. All colors and shadows were changed that for a moment they didn't see the important thing. And then they did. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end, and there was no Aslan. Oh, oh, cried the two girls, rushing back to the table. Oh, it's too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have left the body alone. Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it magic? Yes, said a great voice behind their backs. It is more magic. They looked around, and there, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for it had apparently grown again, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. Aren't you dead then, dear Aslan, said Lucy. Not now, said Aslan. You're not, you're not a, asked Susan in a shaky voice. She couldn't bring herself to say the word ghost. Aslan stooped his golden head and licked her forehead. The warmth of his breath and a rich sort of smell that seemed to hang about his hair came all over her. Do I look it, he said. Oh, you're real. You are real. Oh, Aslan cried Lucy, and both girls flung themselves upon him and covered him with kisses. And when they were somewhat calmer, Susan asked, but what does it all mean? That's the question, isn't it? What does it all mean? Something incredible has happened, something mysterious and magical and terrible and wonderful, something that has never happened before or happened since, But what does it all mean? 
And we cannot ask a more important question ourselves. C.S. Lewis writing allegorically, of course, and pictorially of Christ in the lion Aslan is, is drawing us into the significance of the resurrection and the importance of the question. It's all happened, but as Susan asks, what does it all mean? What, what does it mean that this has happened? And that's what we'll look at today. There's four things that I want to look at about what the resurrection means, what it means to us, and what C.S. Lewis was trying to get across to us in allegory, the, the picture of the resurrection of Christ, the Lion of Judah. First, it means that Christ is our substitute. He's paid for our treachery. It means that with faith in Christ Jesus, we will not pay the ultimate price for our treachery. God is king, and all of his subjects have rebelled against him. Just as Edmund betrayed his siblings and the army of Aslan, we have betrayed each other, and we have betrayed our king. And you're sitting here on a nice Easter Sunday, and you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute, Paul, I... I'm not a traitor. I'm not a treacherous person. I'm not even sure what treacherous means. You know, and a a few people do think of themselves that way. We we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. It's always the other person's fault. There's, There's always a good reason why we have behaved poorly, if we ever have behaved poorly at all in our own estimation. It's so easy for us to forget our shabbier actions, those moments when we acted selfishly. But it isn't just those moments when we finally behave so badly that even we, in our own self-love and self-appreciation, notice it ourselves. It's not just those moments, it's the whole pattern of our life, taking the steps and moving the pieces in our life and navigating situations in just the way that we make sure that we take care of ourselves first and let others and God come second. It's not even just our actions and the patterns of our life, it's the pattern of our thought. If we had the technology... Marvelous thing technology. If if we had the technology to record even just this last week's worth of our secret thoughts in full high-def 4K surround sound, would we want even one week to play on this screen here for people to see our thoughts and what was going on in our minds? What about a month? What about a year of our life? What we thought about Trump or Trudeau? Or what we thought about our boss or our teacher. Maybe what you thought about your pastor or our family or our friends or what we thought or what we didn't think about God. No one is perfect. No one is righteous. No one makes a habit of seeking God and seeking selfless purity. And we can't do it. We can't live perfectly. We can't pay back the debt that we owe others, let alone the debt we owe God. As Pastor Brian said on Good Friday, the best God could offer us in the law and by our works was just paying off the interest on the debt we owe. We could never pay the full price. But the first thing that it means is thank God that there is a substitute for us. There is a way that our debts can be paid in full and clear. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a satisfaction by His blood to be received by faith. God has put forth His own Son, Jesus, to satisfy in our stead the debt and the demand on us for our treachery. 
Edmund could not pay back what he did. The cost of Edmund's treachery was the life of Aslan. And that is the reality that we are in. This is what the resurrection means, Susan. It means that the price was paid and accepted. If Jesus had stayed in the tomb, there'd be no hope that the substitute was accepted. The resurrection proves, as C.S. Lewis would phrase it, that the deep magic worked. And of course, it isn't magic at all, except in the sense that to us it's a mystery. Twenty times in the letters, the Apostle Paul refers to the mystery that God has kept hidden and revealed in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 9-10 says, And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. That's the mystery. That's what C.S. Lewis would call the magic What the resurrection means is that the substitution worked, that we don't pay the price. The price has been paid in our stead. The second thing that it means, it means that everything has changed. When Christ came from the tomb, everything on earth and above earth and under the earth changed. To Susan in Narnia, it meant that spring had come. But the resurrection of Jesus means so much more than just spring to us. 2 Corinthians says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And that means so many things. They cannot be listed, let alone unpacked and explored in today's message. Because Christ rose from the dead in bodily form, nothing is the same for those who believe in him. Everything has changed because of the resurrection. We are no longer slaves to sin, but sons and daughters of God. We're no longer aliens, but citizens of heaven. We have become a royal priesthood. We are not dead in sin, but alive in Christ. We are not bound under law, but are bound by love to Jesus. We're no longer perishable, but imperishable. We're not limited to the mind of man, but may have the mind of the Spirit in Christ Jesus. We don't live by the flesh, but by the Spirit. We have a new family, a new purpose, a new hope. Because Christ rose from the dead, Everything has changed. And I could go on and on through Scripture of all the things in creation that changed because Christ came from that tomb. Everything changed when he rose from the dead. But Paul summarizes a most important part of our newness in Galatians. He says, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. This is what it means, Susan. What does it mean? It means you're free. It means everything is changed in the twinkling of an eye. Everything can change for us if you put 
our trust in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, the third thing that it means is that death is defeated. It means that we need not fear present nor future wrath. What does it mean, Susan asks, and Aslan answers. In the words of C.S. Lewis now, it says, It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Aslan says, if the queen could have looked just a little further back, she could only see to the beginning of time. Ephesians 1.4 says, Even as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. It means you have to look a little further back, into the stillness and the darkness before time. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit knew us while we were still sinners and chose us even in our sin and made a plan to rescue us and make us blameless in love of us, before time, before creation. This had nothing to do with us. How could it? There was no us. There was no earth. There was no universe. There was no time. There was just the Father, the Son, and the Spirit purposing in their love to rescue us from death and wrath that we would bring upon ourselves. And the mystery or the magic, as Lewis calls it, is that death would start working backwards. That's what's changed. That's what it means. Death no longer works like death used to work. And Lewis captures for us here in a modern myth the reality that he read and believed in the pages of Scripture and experienced in his own life. In Hebrews 2.14, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. He died and rose to destroy death. 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus means that death no longer is our enemy. But in fact, death is our friend. Death starts working backwards. Through our, though our flesh will still resist death, our spirit need not fear it. Death for us is now recovered and redeemed by Jesus and it brings us into eternal life, not into wrath. That's what it means. And fourthly, it means that our hope is secure in God's promise. This is just one more of many things that the resurrection means. We could talk all day and all night and all week about what the resurrection means. 
But when you ask, what does it all mean? It means that our hope is secure in God's promise. The resurrection says that we can have faith or more easily says that we can trust God. We can believe Him. We can trust Him. We can put our hope in Him. Our hope in God is secure because of His promise. We can believe what God says because God has proven Himself with this miracle. There is no cause to doubt that Jesus is our substitute, that His sacrifice was accepted. No cause to doubt that the Spirit has come, that we are made new, that we are set free from the law, that everything that God has promised is sealed by this bodily resurrection of Jesus If we hope in Christ Jesus, our hope is secure. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans. No unbelief made him, that's Abraham he's talking about, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteous. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It's not just for Abraham, it's for us. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The resurrection of Jesus bodily from the dead tells us that our hope in God's promise is secure. Just note the particular way of speaking that Paul uses here, the exactness of his phrasing. Righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus. That is, when we hope, when we trust, when we have faith in the Father, we believe in Jesus, of course. We believe Jesus is the Son of God. But our hope is that the promise of the Father is sure. Our belief is on the Father and his promises that Christ's substitute is sufficient. The resurrection means that all the promises of God can be counted on. Our hope is secure. If Jesus remains in the tomb, if he did not rise from the dead, if our Lord and Savior was just dust and bones in an unmarked tomb somewhere in the Middle East, then there would be no hope that he could save us or any hope that he was God's Messiah. There would be no hope that the new covenant had come, no hope that our sins were paid for, that the curtain had been torn to make a way for us into the very presence of God, no hope that we are recipients of God's promise. But because Jesus did rise from that tomb, because the corruptible became incorruptible because Jesus sits not mystically, not spiritually, not figuratively, but because Jesus literally sits bodily at the right hand of God as the first fruits of God's promise, our hope is secure because of that resurrection. Without this resurrection hope, we would just be whistling in the dark. We would just be a bunch of people nervous and afraid of the terrors around us. We would be trying to stir up in ourselves our own little bit of courage that we will somehow come out of this all right. But we don't have to just whistle courageously in the dark, hoping to stir up some confidence and courage in ourselves. Because the light of the world has risen. The Son of God, who those who hope in Him have hope that is secure. What does it mean, Susan asks? What does it all mean? And maybe you ask that same question. 
It means all these things and more. It means a substitute has taken our place and the debt of our treachery and sin has been paid. It means everything has changed. The bound are set free. The weak are made strong. The old has become new. Darkness has become light. Despair is replaced with hope. Lies are replaced with truth. You no no longer have to live in defeat but can have in victory. Everything is being redeemed and restored and made new. Everything has changed. That's what it means. It means death is defeated and we are no longer fear present or future wrath. Jesus has taken the death and redeemed it for his purposes to welcome those who trust him into eternal reward. It means our hope is secure. When we think on these things, Sinclair Ferguson writes, when we consider Christ on the cross, we are shown the lengths to which God's love goes to win us back to himself. We would almost think that God loves us more than he loves his son. Imagine that. When we consider Christ on the cross and the lengths that God has gone to redeem us, it would almost seem he loves us more than his son. And I would add, when we see Christ risen, then we know without a doubt that the work Christ accomplished on the cross was sufficient that God has done what we could not, that our hope in His promises are secure because the Son is risen. And that hope is available to all of us today. You can put your hope in the Father who has promised that the sacrifice and the price that His Son paid on the cross is sufficient and He proved that the price was sufficient in the resurrection. And that he would, if he would resurrect his son, then he will resurrect us. And that we can have eternal life with him. That hope is available to all of us today. Because Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Let's pray.